Hello, this is the Better Strangers podcast for Friday, May 12th. The astute listener will notice that that date is the same date as the release of the new Zelda game, Tears of the Kingdom. And I would just like to point out that I am recording this instead of playing Tears of the Kingdom, which is currently downloaded on my Switch no less than 20 feet away from me. So I, I want I want my commitment to this podcast to just be known up front uh, because I do want to actually do this right and take my time on it. But I want people to know if anything is off, I want that to be in their mind. That the reason that it's off is because I've got that thing right nearby, uh, kind of enticing me away. Anyway, my philosophy with writing uh, has always been I, I've never been able to properly source the quote, but I think it was the journalist Bill Maher who said that a journalist is someone who learns in public. And so I thought that I would share a lot of the things that I've been reading lately, which have really been on the topic of kind of learning to live with and embrace chaos. Um, this is something that a lot of people have a lot of trouble with. Uh, I was on the um, the uh, Almost Awakened podcast earlier this week. I'll link to that in the uh, in the notes, talking about nihilism and kind of like learning how to philosophically deal with, uh, you know, losing belief systems and things sort of crumbling around you. And um, I think that a big part of that that a lot of people have trouble with is chaos. And I think that when you lose a lot of these structures for your way of thinking about the world, when the world turns out to not be the way that you thought it was, you are suddenly kind of like casting about trying to find something that fits better. And a lot of the other stuff just doesn't really fit for you. Um, the book that I read that kind of most helped me with this was um, John Higgs's The KLF, uh, which is actually about a band in the 1990s that burned a million pounds cash as a publicity stunt. It really wasn't a publicity stunt. It was more of a fuck you to the music industry. Um, but he kind of in that talks about this system of thinking about the world called multiple model agnosticism, which is an understanding that every ideology that you can possibly come up with, whether it's capitalism, it's Marxism, it's Christianity, it's anarchism, it's, uh, you know, whatever, pick, pick, pick your poison. Um, all of those are incomplete definitions of what the world is, and they're models that we construct to try and help us get through our day-to-day -day lives, but at some point we forgot that they were models, and we forgot that they weren't reality. They were just our way of kind of navigating reality. And so multiple model agnosticism, which is pushed by um, this famous writer named Robert Anton Wilson, who's most famous for the Illuminatus trilogy, um, which is kind of a conspiracy theory, like, you know, kind of making fun of conspiracy theories book. Um, he said that adopting this agnostic model, which, which he advocated, was basically that you would take on, um, you would take different worldviews and you would use them for different situations depending on whether or not that was the one that helped you navigate that situation the best. So it was a way of kind of embracing the chaos of any given, you know, moment and understanding that you need to be able to switch gears between different ways of thinking uh, relatively quickly if you want to be able to thrive in the chaos that is living in the 21st century. I think if you pay attention to the news and you understand just how much is sort of in flux right now, you'll maybe understand that what we've got coming in the next few decades is probably going to be pretty chaotic and people like to, you know, say what it's going to be like, you know, oh, it's collapse, oh, it's everyone falling apart, like, you know, but we don't actually know what is coming with climate change and with this kind of late capitalist era when 
a lot of what we're doing economically is actively destroying the planet and the planet is starting to behave in a way that something that is being destroyed <laughs> would behave. And so I think that something is that, you know, a lot of people get caught up in despair. And I think that one of the things that I like about the chaos of all of this is that you actually have no clue what direction this is going to head. And history traditionally doesn't follow easy to predict paths because if it did, there would be some people who would be making a much better living as historians. Um, but good books to check out to try and not necessarily wrap your head around that chaos, but to to maybe learn how to live within it. Um, the first one is, and a lot of people on you know social media recommend this, is uh, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler was, uh, she died, I think, about 20 years ago, um, but she was a um, one of the earliest and most prominent black female sci-fi authors. Um, she wrote incredible novels like Kindred, which is kind of like a time travel slavery book. Um, and then she also has a bunch of these really cool, like, you know, alien abduction books. Like she's, she's an amazing author. You should check out all of her stuff. But The Parable of the Sower is set in a future. Uh, it's actually set around now, like around the 2020s. And um, where climate change is kind of run away, uh, a president has been elected on the, the platform of Make America Great Again. He's a Christian fundamentalist, and um, there's, you know, basically society starting to fall apart, and there's all this, like, rise in, like, crime and drug use, and, uh, you know, and basically the main character in it invents her own religion, which she calls Earthseed. Um, and uh, the kind of core tenet of it is that God is change. So she refers to change as being the only thing that is permanent in the world, and that if you under if you start thinking of God as change, you can then start intentionally shaping change. And so she starts pulling in followers with this uh, this new kind of religion that she's invented. And uh, the kind of goal of the religion is to eventually uh, populate other planets, uh, which I don't know if I agree with that part so much, but the actual philosophy of the Earthseed religion is a really interesting one, especially if you're living through chaotic times, because it helps you to kind of view the world as something that is constantly changing and adapting. And um, it is a much better way of kind of understanding what we're going through. So there's an activist and an author who um, has kind of taken Octavia Butler's philosophy in this book and has applied it to activism and to day-to-day -day life. Um, her name is Adrienne Marie Brown. I believe she's based out of my home state in Ohio. Um, but she, uh, she has worked in um, environmentalist and racial justice and uh, prison abolition for a very long time, and she developed something called Emergent Strategy which is based off of uh, this kind of Earthseed idea. And uh, she wrote a book on it. Uh, it's, I got it available on ebook from our, um, from our local library. It's, um, it's really, really great. She's, uh, she kind of talks about how getting a sense of kind of sitting with and being comfortable with the chaos is so essential to being able to live through it and to also maybe influence the direction uh, that things go uh, in the future by by understanding kind of what chaos is and how chaos works. This is sort of the opposite of something that's known as disaster capitalism, which is that uh, if you've ever read um, 
Naomi Klein's Naomi Klein's book, uh, The Shock Doctrine. She talks about how every time there's a natural disaster, there are these capitalist forces that swoop in and start privatizing as much as possible. So Hurricane Katrina, that was when they started pushing a lot of charter schools in New Orleans. And, um, and it's when a lot of developers will sweep in and buy up cheap land that's been destroyed by, by the hurricane. And then they'll turn, they'll gentrify a neighborhood that has long belonged to like, you know, a specific community. And so, um, this is something that capitalists have known for a very long time and very intentionally did and, and, and actually to the point where in like the 1970s, um, capitalist forces in the United States, uh, specifically Milton Freeman's uh, Chicago School of Economics and the um, – I believe that was the Nixon administration uh, – orchestrated a coup in Chile as a way of enforcing – kind of getting rid of a socialist president and enforcing – a bunch of uh, jamming through a lot of capitalist policies. And they realized that in the shock of having a coup, they could jam through policies and no one would notice that because there was so much going on that they would be distracted by the fact that there was now a dictator in their country instead of a democratically elected president. So by, by taking advantage of these moments of chaos, the capitalists were effectively able to privatize a lot of the country. Um, and uh, what Adrian Marie Brown points out is that this this ability to capitalize on chaos and to build something and to use that that time to install something new is actually available to everyone, not just to capitalists, and that we could use these kind of chaotic times as a way of getting our feet under us with building something better. And that would be stuff that would have to be built on the community level um, and, and sort of grassroots. But you know, there is still plenty of, you know, she, she gives a lot of like tips and uh, strategies for, for how to go about that. Um, it is a hundred percent worth reading. And if you can find it at your, it's, if you have hoopla from your libraries, um, you know, ebook collection, then, uh, they should have an audiobook version of it on that. So that one is also very much worth checking out. So the next book that I would recommend that I've also been reading recently has been, um, James C. Scott's The Art of Not Being Governed. So Scott, uh, I've recommended on some other things before. He wrote a book called Two Cheers for Anarchism, where he doesn't necessarily say become an anarchist, but he says it's useful to to think like an anarchist in a lot of situations. That one's worth reading too. Uh, but The Art of Not Being Governed is probably the one that he's the best known for, and it is a it is an academic study of an area in Southeast Asia known as Zomia. And it's a uh, mountainous region that covers several countries. And this mountainous region uh, traditionally was impossible to tame. It had a lot of people who, whenever civilization would kind of like develop in the kind of lowland areas of Southeast Asia, people who didn't want to be a part of that civilization would then flee to the hills uh, in, in around the, the civilization and basically live, um, you know, kind of egalitarian uh, hunter-gatherer, or not necessarily hunter-gatherer, this, they, they also grew food of their own, but they did a lot of foraging, and they had much more like transient lives where they were able to basically live with total freedom outside the bounds of the state. So one of the things that Scott is kind of pointing out in writing this is that these pockets of um, like uncivilized, uncivilized areas have always, until very recently, have always existed uh, in, in somewhere in our world. So, you know, I live in New Jersey 
and the Pine Barrens um, in the southern part of New Jersey became a kind of a refuge for people who were running from something. Um, first, it was like, you know, uh, uh, Hessian deserters during the Revolutionary War. There were a lot of runaway slaves that went to the Pine Barrens. There were a lot of um, Lenape Indians who didn't want to be relocated who, who went into the Pine Barrens. There were... Um, all sorts of, you know, Civil War deserters. There were uh, pirates. There was a very big pirate contingent in, in the Pine Barrens because the Pine Barrens are right up against the water. And so it became like this really easy place for pirates to flee to if they wanted to hide for, from someone who was uh, searching for them because it's this really dense, you know, pine forest that just sits like right off of the Jersey Shore. But, you know, Pine Barrens is one example, but, you know, also like, you know, the Everglades, also the Appalachian Mountains, places that are hard to access end up being places where people go if they want to kind of exist outside the bounds of the state. One of the things I noticed when uh, I got to do a helicopter ride over the Grand Canyon a few years back and I was in, you, we left from Las Vegas and you kind of go out over the desert and as you're flying over the desert towards the Grand Canyon, you see these towns, which are basically eight homes in a circle with a single straight road leading, leaving, you know, like 10 miles out into the distance. You know, and I asked the, our pilot, like, you know, what's going on with those? And he said, oh, that's either, that's either going to be um, polygamists uh, Mormon polygamists or uh, probably, you know, criminals. And the point being that they live in such a remote place because they can kind of escape the bounds of the law. And by having one road, they can pretty much always see people coming if people are coming for them. Um, and so, you know, this kind of like tactic of, you know, isolating yourself and then being able to kind of like up and leave at any given moment and to transition really quickly is something that the people in this mountainous region, Zomia, uh, really mastered in a way that, you know, that has happened in a few other spots in the world like the Balkans or the Caucasus or Appalachia. But um, by fleeing to these places, they developed certain systems of living that allowed them to elude the power of the state. Uh, the reason they did this is because early states were were largely, you know, a, a huge proportion of the people who lived under these governments were slaves. Um, there were people that basically it was it was how much they could, you know, the people who ran these states could militarily control the area that they lived in. Uh, they would, you know, have high taxation. They would force people into to you know they would either be slaves permanently or they would force them into, you know, spending half their time working on their their own plots of land and the other half, like, you know, helping out the state. And so this is something that has always existed with, with the state is there's always been, uh, you know, a certain degree of hierarchy, exploitation, and even slavery. And so people obviously didn't want to live in that. And so they would flee up into the mountains. And one of the things that they were able to do there is they were able to forage a lot better. So one of the things, the skill sets that he says is impossible for a state to really kind of wrap its hands around is foraging. So if you're just walking around your neighborhood and you're just picking out stuff that you find in the ground, there's no way for that to be taxed. There's no way for it to be something that you have to go through, you know, traditional channels of like paying money to get. Um, so it's something that's impossible for governments to control. 
And so foraging by its nature is a tactic that is used by these people to try and uh, make sure that they're able to, you know, survive without having to deal with, with the government, and which makes it harder for the government to incorporate them. So there are a couple other tactics he mentioned. Uh, oh, one thing I did want to mention, I, I put this up on TikTok, but it was incredibly interesting. It was basically talking about how potatoes are some of the best plants if you're trying to resist a government. Root vegetables are impossible to, because they grow underground, they are a lot harder to find. And so if you wanted to, if you were growing potatoes and, uh, you know, a army were to come in and say, give us your stores of food, you just would not have to show them where you'd planted all your potatoes. And if they wanted to take them, they'd have to dig every single one of them up one by one. And potatoes can last underground for like up to two years. And so it's kind of a perfect thing where only you know where they're buried. And so that was something like in Ireland, one of the reasons that people were so reliant on potatoes, aside from the fact that it was really, you know, really good resource for, you know, for health. Um, it was because the British couldn't adequately control the planting of potatoes. And that's why the potato famine ended up being so devastating is it basically crippled the ability of the Irish countrysides, uh, you know, the uh, people in the Irish countryside to like, you know, resist the British because their, their main food source outside of giving all of their money to the, like their colonial masters was, you know, destroyed by this, the, the potato blight. So Scott talks about that with, uh, you know, um, with root vegetables in particular as being really good ways, kind of preferred plants by people who are trying to avoid, um, dealing with the government. Um, you know, other plants that grow above ground are much easier to see and they're much easier to steal. Um, so that's kind of one of his, one of his tactics for, you know, for, for avoiding, um, governments. So look, if you're worried about the government collapsing or anything like that, one of the good things you could start doing is you could start learning how to forage. You could start learning what foods in your neighborhood are edible, what foods could be planted, and how to sort of grow your own food, how to do, you know, things like guerrilla gardening um, and, uh, you know, just foraging. Um, there's an amazing um, Instagram and TikTok account. Um, it's at uh, Black Forager. Uh, her name's Alexis. I forget her last name, but she's fantastic. And she's she's based out of Ohio. So she basically goes through different plants and talks about where you can find them, what time of year you can get them, what parts are edible, what parts aren't edible, and how you can prepare them in different ways. Uh, she's an amazing person to follow if you're interested in that sort of thing. But there were also other ways that the, um, the people of this... Um, this area, Zomia, would resist being kind of incorporated and would be able to kind of live independent lives outside of, of you know, the state. And so uh, another really interesting one was um, they actually preferred to have oral traditions rather than written traditions. So, you know, when we talk about civilization, a big thing we talk about is literacy. And in many of these areas, it makes more sense for them to... Uh, speak to tell stories, you know, basically to each other than it is to have them written down. Because if it's written down, then someone can control it. Someone can, you know, have control of the publication. They can own the story. They can point to the text and say, this is the canonical version of it. This is the one that matters. Whereas if it's oral, it can be changed to adapt to certain situations. Now, this isn't to say that people are actively, you know, you know, lying when they're when they're in, in oral traditions. It's just that oral traditions allow for a level of flexibility in terms of how you tell your story, where 
you don't have to rely quite so much on, you know, an outside authority. You can basically see what fits in a given moment. And so a big place that this mattered a lot was in genealogy. If you put authority into the people that you're descended from, then it's very important that you know who you're descended from. If you are a civilization and you're trying to say, you know, you're trying to classify people and organize them in a certain way and into a single tribe, it's useful to have like, you know, a written out family tree. If you're someone who does not want to be classified and therefore taxed by a state, then you can basically have shifting genealogies. You can say, oh, I come from this branch of this, or, you know, so, or, or if, you know, if there's someone who have fled away from the state, a runaway slave, for example, who comes into your tribe and you embrace them and, uh, and work with them, you, uh, can change your family tree so that they now are part, they have always been a part of your family. It's a way of hiding people. And it's a way of basically kind of sliding your way out of the classifications that are required for uh, a state to kind of have control over you. I think that, like, especially in an age of social media where we are all constantly actively trying to classify ourselves and put ourselves into specific groups, I think it's maybe kind of liberating to think of, you know, not trying to classify yourself and realizing that you can shift over the course of your life depending on what the situation demands and that your identity actually can be this sort of like changing, shifting thing based off of, you know, what your needs are in a given moment, which is kind of the reality of what an identity is anyway. Like you, you emphasize certain things that are important to you based off of what you need in a given moment. But, um, I think that that's, that's a very useful, very useful lesson from kind of this, the art of not being governed. Um, the final thing that I wanted to talk about from the art of not being governed was he talked about religions as being a way that people resisted, um, you know, uh, incorporation by the state. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, you know, he, he pointed out that prior to like the American and French revolutions, um, any revolution was religious in nature. Uh, it was always something that was a matter of um, heresy or apostasy, where certain groups or sects would adopt different religious views, and that would be basically, you know, at the time, religion, politics, and economics were all recognized as being completely tied up in one another. Um, Jesus is a perfect example of this. Jesus was effectively a political leader as well as a religious leader. He kind of rejected that in a sort of anarchist sort of way, where he didn't want that sort of power, and he kind of made points about, um, you know, God being inside you and not being, you know, the, you know, render that which is Caesar, unto Caesar, which is Caesar's, and, you know, kind of like viewing the state as something that didn't have any sort of true authority, whereas God did. And so in having that kind of concept of authority, he was, even if he was just trying to say a spiritual thing, which is what people today kind of like presented as, it was inherently political because it was basically saying the authority is not Caesar. The authority is God. And this is something that regularly happens, particularly among oppressed people, is that they come up with religious understandings of the world that help them place authority not in the place where it's actively oppressing them. Uh, and instead, within them or within their group or within their tribe or within um, you know, some aspect of their identity. 
So there's this really cool thing that's happening right now with a lot of, especially the Gen Z kids, where they're getting much more interested in things like paganism. Um, and paganism is a much more earth-based philosophy. It is directly contradictory to kind of the Christianity that we, we that the most of the um, Western civilization is based on right now. And it is something that is way, it, it, its authority is placed in, you know, kind of in nature and in people rather than in any sort of institution and hierarchy. Uh, you know, some weird side effects of this is that, you know, people are suddenly very into astrology, but it is also a way of trying to re-understand the world in a way that makes more sense given what we now know to be true about the world and what we know to be true about Christianity, about capitalism, and about all of these structures that we kind of have dictating our way of life now. So a part of any sort of ability to shift into a new way of thinking has to involve some sort of um, religious or spiritual element. And you do have to kind of come up with a way where you can decide, okay, where is authority now? Where should it be? What is a way of thinking in which I can kind of put the authority someplace else and start acting as if that's true? And, you know, in a lot of these, you know, the, the Hill people that, that Scott is talking about in The Art of Not Being Governed, um, they were led by these kind of like prophetic people, these very charismatic people who would come out and they would, you know, lead these fights. And, and you see this happening still, like in stuff like the Mexican Revolution in the 1910s, people like Emiliano Zapata, um, who became kind of this like almost Christ-like martyr figure because of sort of his ideology, his charisma, his ability as a general and to this day, uh, he still inspires revolutionary movements around the world, most notably the Zapatista movement in, in Mexico, which has been extremely influential to, to pretty, pretty much every radical currently living. Um, so, you know, this, this sort of, I think one of the things that we miss when we're trying to change our world is that we're trying to do it with, you know, without understanding that having some sort of spiritual understanding of the world or some sort of spiritual vision is kind of vital to that sort of change and that that has traditionally been the thing that has driven these massive changes and resistance movements. So uh, to kind of, you know, sum up a little bit, um, we are probably facing a few decades of a lot of chaos, but um, there are all sorts of strategies and tactics that we can look to in literature and in history, which people have used to, you know, kind of um, adapt to these these chaotic moments. Because this is not the first chaotic moment in history. There have been long periods of stability punctuated by long periods of chaos, and we may be entering, we may be leaving a stable period and going into a chaotic period. And that's kind of a bummer, but, you know, also it has a lot of possibility packed into it. And this has been something that has happened historically. And one of the things we know is that during these times, uh, philosophies that kind of ground your world within yourself um, are really take off. So, you know, in chaotic periods, Taoism does really good, does really well. It, it tends to have growth. Um, Stoicism, um, you know, a lot of these philosophies that are based around sort of internal peace and, you know, living in the moment and kind of taking change as it comes and not necessarily bemoaning the fact that there is change, but instead learning how to live with it and learning how to adapt to it and building up some sort of internal resilience as being one of the primary ways that you can kind of live through these sort of moments of chaos. 
Uh, I'm going to keep reading on this topic. It's something that um, I find extremely interesting, um, about, and I'll obviously share that on uh, future podcasts or articles or TikToks. Um, but uh, yeah, if you are interested more in like kind of like you know getting through nihilism and this sort of total lack of any sort of belief system, definitely listen to the Almost Awakened podcast I did earlier this week. Um, with uh, Britt Hartley and Bill Reel. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll link to that in the page. Otherwise, I will see you guys on Monday. Have a great weekend. I hope you get to play Tears of the Kingdom, because I'm going to go do that right now.